0: So the question that I was going to ask you, Emily, to kind of get us started was when you were imagining our conversation today with Erica and you were you also had shared before we you know got on the call that you were talking to your mom a bit. Um, mm-hmm. What was it that you were curious about as I was kind of joining your and Erica's conversation? What were you curious about? With my perspective and the things that you guys have been talking about, where would you like to pick up there?
1: That is Sierra. Sierra is my best friend, and she is also a part of the Holy District team here in Allentown. She's joining us today for this episode four of our Eternal Oblivion podcast to add another perspective to this conversation that we so (laughs) crazily started a few weeks ago. Sierra is someone who was diagnosed with a terminal illness, cystic fibrosis, when she was very small. She's an extremely courageous and compassionate person. And I feel really lucky to be her friend and to have her on the podcast today sharing with us and just adding to the conversation with Emily and I about what it means to contemplate our mortality, fear of non existence, and how knowing that we all die someday really does shape the way that we choose to live. It's a long conversation, and it certainly has some twists and turns. We talk about everything from self-awareness to hearing a bit of Sierra's story of what it's like to grow up with a terminal illness, how the pandemic affected her particularly. We'll talk a little bit about the Bible and some of Emily's concerns about this book that's supposed to be so important and life-giving within the Christian faith and probably a few other things that I haven't even mentioned. With all that being said, I hope that this episode is just one more layer for you to consider and reflect on and talk about with the people around you. Let's jump in. Well, um,
2: like I had said um, earlier, it was like um, I felt like I was going to take a back seat to this conversation uh not because of either of your opinions or anything like that but because a lot of times when someone has something bigger than what i have i i want to make room for that like make the space for that
0: hmm. when you when you say something bigger than you have i'm assuming you are kind of referencing cystic fibrosis
3: yes mm-hmm. okay yep
0: Okay, I think this is this is a good place to start um because the first thing i I guess I want to um, push back on a little bit is this bigger this idea of bigger mm-hmm. um like the bigger hardship, the bigger you know focus point of a conversation um that's something that I know you know Erica you and I have talked about over the course of you know the years that we've known each other because it it almost, I suppose it's, it's a weird form of like self-evaluation and almost shame that can kind of get wrapped into how we think about our own life experiences. Oh yeah.
2: I have a lot of invalidation mm-hmm. with myself
0: for
2: mm-hmm. sure, which stems from, I would say childhood, but also from, um, religious trauma, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. hmm Well, um, yeah, that that was just something that initially kind of I clued into, and I wanted to maybe name before we even get too much into our conversation, because I think um, going into this with the frame of mind that well, whatever I would have to share wouldn't be as important because she has cystic fibrosis. Um, That will, I think, just alter our ability to really dialogue. Um, yeah. And, and you being able to bring really important and relatable pieces to the conversation as well. Um, and I don't see you that way. So I guess I'm, I'm just naming that because there are a lot of people that could be listening where my experience is a piece of cake, um, you know, compared to something else. And the idea here is that we are speaking to a through line of human experience, not the specificity right. of the experience.
1: Right. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you said that, Sierra, because I hear you and I affirm that whole idea. And I also want to say that there is something really important about the specificity as we're sharing our stories and we're creating the space together, because I think the particulars are the place where people can actually intersect with their story. And that gives them something to hold on to and relate to. Mm. And so we can toggle freely back and forth between these broad experiences that we have just as human beings, Mm -hmm. this, the fear of death, that's human. Um, The uncertainty about what happens after we die. I mean, clearly no one can know for Mm -hmm. sure. And what that does to us. And we all would probably, if we're being honest with ourselves, say that we have some level of anxiety about that. And then to zoom in on Emily's experience, like we have in these last few episodes and say, this is coming from Emily's perspective as someone who uh would you em, would you say deconstructed? would you say that you deconstructed your faith or is that a kind of a trend word that you wouldn't necessarily identify with? Yeah, I'd say that who deconstructed out of a Christian, you know particular Christian worldview and as no- the beginning it was
2: more of a identity crisis, and then it it felt like I needed to have that reflection,
1: yeah. Yeah, If that's deconstruction, then yes. Yeah. And now to be someone who doesn't identify as a Christian and, and as a mom and as someone who lost a loved one and your interaction with death is unique to you. And then now Sierra, someone who was born with a terminal illness, cystic fibrosis. And from very young, a timer was put on your life to say, you know, there's a best case scenario. And in that you're going to live half as long as the average person. And the way that you have grappled with the idea of death is unique to you, but then is also um, common with other people who have cystic fibrosis or have terminal illness or chronic illness or whatever it may be. And so what I'm really um, looking forward to in this conversation today is how our stories are going to intersect with one another where there will be similarities, which is affirming and makes us feel like we're not crazy and we're not stupid and we're not just totally out of bounds, Mm -hmm. but also where there's difference to say, yeah, this is unique to me and it's hard for me. And here's how I've been Mm -hmm. finding my way. If I have been finding my way Mm -hmm. Um, and you're two people that I deeply respect, I love, and I learn from every single day. So I'm just really excited that the Holy District Network is going to get to hear from you about such an important topic.
2: And I'm going to ask a question because some reflection from the last few episodes, um, I don't know if I really touched on the unknown that came with with COVID for everyone, I think really helped wake me up to this problem. Um, And I don't have any like underlying, you know, conditions or anything like that. But it was it really was that like we're seeing so many of our friends and family members and um just all these people be affected by it. And um how was that for you, Sierra?
0: How was COVID for me?
2: Yeah, like at least the beginning, like how how did that did it affect you? Did it um I would say more so mentally, but maybe physically as well. Hmm did it make that sense of um, uh, like mortality real or realer than it already was for you? More present. Yeah. More present.
0: So I am thinking about the timeline of that. And so for those listening and who might, have at least a general idea of cystic fibrosis for me um my life experience shifted quite a bit and Emily for you I think you you know slightly about this but um as of December 2019 so you know three months (laughs) before COVID started um I started on uh, a drug and I honestly I don't think it would be a problem to the name of the drug, but I didn't even think about that. Um, But I started on a drug called Trikafta. And a few years prior to that, I had been in a research study where a very short window of time I was on it, and it just was truly probably the closest thing that they've come to a cure at this point. But it really, even now, has only been beneficial to a um, particular set of people with cf because of our genetic mutations. And so there are still some people with cf who have not had the the fortune of the kind of shift that I've experienced from being on Trikafta. But that that timeline is important because December 2019 I started this drug and I mean it is incredibly fast acting so within a month um it was a it was a drastic quality of life change and just a couple like of
2: good quality of life or, okay.
0: So, you know, I, I have described, um, Trikafta as being as, yeah, as, as being this, um, change to my life and all the ordinary things in extraordinary ways, because leading up to Trikafta, just, just in 2019, the year 2019, um, I had grown probably the the sickest that I had been, my lung function was um in the 30s, so about 30% capacity. Yeah. I had been sick multiple times. And in, let's see, that would have been around July or August of that year, um, I had my port put in, which felt like this monumental milestone of like accepting the worsening of my disease and they were ready to put a feeding tube in at that time too. And I said, please I, I have to hold off like I can't handle both of these at the same time. And um so I was certainly grateful in December when I started Trikafta that I hadn't you know done the feeding tube portion of that but the where I was at at that point in life was I was showering with a chair I couldn't do, normal tasks, just vacuuming the living room, I would have to pause every couple of you know seconds to have a coughing fit leaning over my vacuum, like just things like that. Grocery shopping, I would have to lean on the cart and doing ordinary things around the house were just so fatiguing. And you would start every morning by you know 15 or 20 minutes in bed just coughing, just to go be exhausted and sit in the shower and it'd be too tiring to hold my hands over my head to wash my hair. Yeah. And so that was kind of where I was at. And, um, even, you know, earlier that year, maybe it was the end of 2018. This was when I was with you. And I remember, um, the I'm kind of fusing a couple of things together. Emily, to give you a, a general picture of where I was yeah. to forecast forward. Um, As you know, my my family, my parents um, live in Illinois. I've lived in Arizona and now in Pennsylvania, but at the time I hadn't seen my parents for probably a year or two. And they came to visit um, in January, January of 2019. And um, the night before they came, I was in the ER on oxygen and got out in time for them to come and visit. And when they were visiting, when you're not around someone every day and they are sick, you kind of just accept that, um, you know, business as usual. That they're still talking to you, you're still checking in with them every day, everything is fine. And then you then you see them and you're like, oh, wow, it's that reality check. And I was very aware of that. Every time I saw my family, every time I was around them, um, I could feel it. Like I could feel their fear and anxiousness when they, when they looked at me because I was growing thinner. I'm already pretty thin, but I was thin. And my coughing fits and my the fact that I would go on a walk with my family and I was too winded and I would be frustrated that we were even walking. And then I'd be irritable and yeah. this whole thing. And so when my family came to visit and I was showering with a chair, my parents shared with me much later that it like hit them in the face um, because they were upstairs and they heard me moving my chair around in the shower. And when I got out of the shower, I was too exhausted to even get dressed. And I just laid in my towel on my bed for about an hour and my mom helped me get dressed. And I remember feeling so embarrassed and also just like, this is my life now and it's not going to get any better. It it gets worse from here and having to deal with that on my own. And also know that my, my parents and my brothers and my best friends, everyone around me was watching. It Mm
3: -hmm. was
0: almost worse because it felt cruel to even continue like being in relationship with people who are just going to have to like watch you wither away. Um, And so that was the that was the quality of life then <laughs> in december 2019 after i started taking this drug um i i was taking my dogs on a hike in on a hike in sedona i was trying to go running for the first time again i was doing grocery shopping and loving it <laughs> i was doing all these ordinary things that just feel like these mundane tasks and i'm like get to do this yes and just um gaining weight and being like thrilled like sending pictures of the scale because I'm like holy crap my body is doing this thing that feels so normal but has felt like I was never gonna see that again I was never gonna yeah and so um when COVID hit I remember a text from you I was thinking about not going to work Um, one day or or something, because I was like, ah, I just heard about this. Maybe I should stay home for a couple of weeks. Let it ride. (laughs) Let it it pass. Right. Um, Erica, she, I, I'm Erica is not someone who responds in fear nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. And I could feel the concern and I would say borderline fear, um, in her message where she's like, I think you should probably get ready to like buckle down for a while. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I just started this drug. Right. And if, if COVID, <laughs> if, if I get COVID and this ruins yes, I'm going to fight someone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, I, I would say it almost felt surreal. Like, that can't happen. That can't happen. I just got this drug. This is yep. where my life is at. And also now, now this. And so I would say I, I, I went through a period where I was trying to control like everything uh, yes. around that. And, you know, at the time I was um, married to Ben and um, he was like going out grocery shopping in lieu of me. And I like sent him out looking like he was you know, going into surgery like gloves and a mask.
2: <laughs> it such a confusing time. I remember making Aaron like shower as soon as he got home. I was cleaning the doorknobs like incessantly. You know, it. it I mean, I just can't even imagine. Of course, I would. I'd go out in a hazmat suit if it was kind of <laughs> a medicine that was working. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I share all of that. Like that was kind of my reaction to it. But honestly, um, there was so much more going on for me at that point that I feel like COVID took a backseat in in so far as my concerns or what I was wrestling with, because the reality is um, growing up with a terminal illness and and from a very, very early age, um, like grade school people being like, so are your lungs just going to shrivel up and fall off? and you know and that's that's children trying to wrestle with like what does this even mean and you don't understand the the magnitude of the kinds of things that you're you're talking about but yeah the best to the best of my developmental ability I did and I remember having conversations with my best friend at the time like telling her yeah like I'm probably going to be dead in you know 15 years or I won't I'm not going to live to be I'm not going to live to get married. I'm not going to, you know, yes. all of these things to, it was almost like to be realistic and realistic became my safety net, like realism um, or practicality is the way that I deal with this because there's, there's nothing else I can do about it. And feeling that fear all the time just made me angry. I was so angry all the time inside. And the people who experienced that side of me were the people closest to me, my family and my loved ones. And um, that was a challenge in and of itself. And so after I started Trikafta and I started processing, okay, now maybe I have some time to live and now I have to deal with the reality of how I've um, engaged my life up to this point, thinking I was going to die. So many things (laughs) change when that happens. And it's mm-hmm. like overnight, everything flips, but yet your, your mind has been oriented towards this way of being mm-hmm. for your entire life. It doesn't just flip over like a quarter. Right. And...
2: Especially when you're in such a extreme
0: part of it. Yeah. You know, and so I remember sharing with Erica, like... Now I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that I might actually lose people I love. Whereas before I was preparing to die myself. I wasn't preparing to watch anyone that I love die. What right. do I do with that?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And, um, you know, having like n- n- just horrible stress dreams and that just like, we're on a loop. Um, I would wake up and feel this like impending doom. Like I'm going to get a call that my dad got in a car accident. I'm going to get a call that something, because I was like. I never thought about this before. All I was trying to do was figure out how to suffer well (laughs) and make sure that I'm strong enough so that my family doesn't suffer too much while they watch me suffer. And to then think, well, I didn't, I don't have a life planned. I thought I was going to be dead now or I thought I was going to be like drowning in my own fluid Right. I didn't know that I would be here. And now I don't know what to do now that I'm here. So all of that was just wrapping up for me when COVID started. So it's like, I was almost, it was kind of incredulous. Like I was like, I don't, COVID can't, that's, nope. <laughs> I've got- well,
2: like I've, at this point,
0: okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, if I get COVID and I die, it was meant to be, like- <laughs> you know, like just the, the way that was. And I, I'm kind of joking about it, but really it's like, my brain didn't have space for that. Um, because I was just coming to terms with like, is track after even going to last? Is this a, is this a sick joke where I'm going to be taking yeah. six months from now, it stops working. And now I'm back to square one. And I had all this hope built up because I have this, wondering yeah,
2: if that shoe's going to drop. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because in my mind and in my life to this point, it was like, if I just don't really hope that anything's going to, if I don't hope for anything or think that mm-hmm. it's going to go really well, then at least I've managed my disappointment. Yes. Um, and that management of disappointment didn't know what to do when it was like, this is looking good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I'll kind of, that's, that is probably the best answer to the COVID question. You know, something
1: uh, that I know and love about both of you is that you are both very formidable women. And it's almost, almost like whenever you were answering that question, Sierra, and you're like, COVID, it's like, screw you. Like <laughs> there was a point when you're like, I have been through too much for this to be. <laughs> and
2: taking me out.
1: yeah. And, and on another hand, uh, being your friend and walking through life, uh, you know, good bit of life with you so far, there is that reality that you were just naming that you were, you felt the immediacy of death. You felt your mortality more than most people will, because you were reminded of it every time you took a breath, every time you tried to, when you take a shower, when you go to the grocery store, you have this constant, it was like a ticker, mm-hmm. you know, going off in your mind and that shaped the way you thought about yourself that shaped the way that you were able to relate to your family and loved ones. That that shaped decisions that you made or didn't make for mm-hmm. your life. And um, and in, in a way, you were so busy surviving
0: mm-hmm.
1: that so many of the things that have to do with like flourishing and really enjoying life didn't. You really didn't have. You didn't have capacity to to really mess around too much with COVID or or think about that too much. But also, in a lot of ways, you didn't have a lot of capacity to really just like imagine living Mm -hmm. and experiencing what goodness life might have to offer. And it just makes me think it like strikes some chords. M like where we've been talking about, you've been sharing about your own trauma and you've been surviving and you've been taking hits and COVID like the, the KO that really was just like, we're all going to die. That that on top of all these other layers that you were so you know gracious you know to share with us throughout this interview so far like we are kidding ourselves just as human beings if we if we try to say that death does not shape the way that we engage life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um i don't think that means that we must live in a constant state of like height, heightened anxiety But if we aren't willing to really look at it and be open eyed, we are going to be missing so much opportunity for insight and self-knowledge, which is something that uh, to circle back. I say you two are two formidable women. You are two people who are really ruthless when it comes to being reflective and accountable and um, paying attention to yourselves and and why you do what you do and wanting to, to grow as a person. And so, um, yeah, that's almost kind of a summary statement, but also a kind of a softball toss to say, what do you guys think of that? Either of you, does that resonate? That's how it feels being your sister and your best friend and just loving you and just witnessing your life. Does that feel fair or would you say something different? It's painful
2: to me. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) it truly is. Cause I mean, when you are so self-aware that like you want to enjoy it, you want to enjoy whatever this is, you know, you want to enjoy life. And, um, there's just, there's just so much around you that's like being affected. And, um, like I said, unfair to me, to the world, you know, to my husband, to my best friend or whoever it is, it's, um, like, It's it's just, it's kind of mind boggling to me how much I feel like it really is like, um, because like I've shared with you that vulnerability to me is like a part of my personality. So when people are saying like, I, um, I love your vulnerability. Like, thank you for being so transparent. I don't really know any other way. And that's not like speaking, um, highly of myself, that's like, man, I just wish I could take a day off. Mm. Like, I wish I could, um, just turn it off for a minute. And even when I think that I kind of have, um, you know, sometimes I get just really hit hard. So, I mean, there's, a there's joy to it, like feeling so deeply with things, but, um, you know, It's it for my world. It feels very
1: difficult (laughs) to navigate. Yeah, yeah. Did you have something that you wanted to say? I I have some more questions that are coming to mind that might take us, you know, further into the podcast. Yeah.
0: Um, I think the thought that came to my mind, which it was forming as you were finishing your question, and Emily even at the beginning of what you were sharing, that I guess I've never really words to, but, um, I think the thought of how you referenced like the, that self-reflection and that, you know, sometimes it's, it's an asset (laughs) and sometimes it's a real big shadow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that I know, um, had really influenced how I thought about um my friends and my family um I would I'm gonna you know date this like pre pre-T and post T. <laughs> um and I I kind of alluded to it a, a minute ago and we even talked about this a couple months ago but um that it it felt cruel to have people love me. Um pre
2: I can hear that when you were talking. pre yeah, that.
0: Yeah and and then if and then I was critical of myself and I, you know, was very aware of how angry I was. And so I would be angry because I feel all this stuff, even down to like I'd be, you know, sitting in a conversation and I feel the flutter in my chest and I can hear my my the mucus moving in my like in my chest, but I hear it in my ears almost like a heartbeat in your ear yeah. like hot or you've run. And that was there. Most of the time, like I, I started sleeping with a sound machine, so I wouldn't hear my own breathing Um, that would like keep me from falling asleep. Um, And so I would get frustrated. Like it was just, I was at this like baseline level of irritation all the time. And I would respond to my family out of that irritation. And then when I'm by myself, I feel grief about how I've responded to my family. Yeah, and I'm like, this is how they're going to remember you.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, what is yeah. wrong with you? You you are not kind, but your heart and your empathetic spirit is, is oriented that way. What is wrong with you that that doesn't line up? And it was this in, in the midst of CF being what it was, I felt like kind of like I, um, I guess, I guess maybe, I hate this word, but the the failure thing was there for me or or an inadequacy, I think is probably a better word because it felt like you're not measuring up as a daughter. You're not measuring up as a sister. You're not measuring up as a friend because the world revolves around your own suffering because you're irritated all the time. Right. You can't snap out of it. But yet I love everyone so deeply in my life and I care so much for them. But it's this whole other thing that I'm going through is preventing me from showing up. In those friendships, yeah, and so I mainly I say that because I think that is something I still work through today. It, it okay. looks a little different because post T, my my physical life looks a little different, but how I think about how I interact in my friendships and with the people that I love, and how that that is all kind of shaped around this larger way of seeing the world, of like you can lose anyone that you love at any moment. Yeah. And how do we take advantage of the moments that we have? And that being, and me being particularly attuned to that because I lived my entire life up to this point feeling that way, but because, but for myself, like, yeah, you know, every fight that I had, it's like, well, I, I need to circle back around on that because I don't want them. I don't want this to be how the time that we have is spent. And, well,
2: and see, like with, um, we did this podcast before, um,
3: the heaviness of, like, our uncle, knowing that our uncle was going to go. Sorry. And I just had, like, a lot of, like, not, not regret, but, like,
2: because it wasn't sensical. Like, it didn't make sense with how far we lived away, um, and me having small children, even COVID, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would have anyways, but there was a lot of, um, the experiences that I did have with him, even if they were few and far between, they were good. And I remember thinking, um, my uncle had cancer and it was pretty fast. It was pretty fast from the time that we found out to the time that he passed away. And, um, and I, I don't know if a lot of people say this, but I mean, he just like my uncles and my dad, they just kind of seemed invincible to me. <clears throat> and I'm, and I, I wouldn't say that for the rest of my family. And so just like imagining what he was going through. And by the time that I had kind of reached the point that I was going to push myself to be vulnerable and like, um, just start calling him and trying to, uh, not make up for lost time, but just have a relationship. Um, it was too late and I just, it was very difficult because I would just be doing the most mundane things or just things that you do as a mom. And I'd be thinking of, imagining what he was doing. And I tried to call him a couple times and I could tell that um, he most likely couldn't really talk anymore without it being painful. So having a lot of, um, wasn't frustrated with him. I wasn't, I understood like those last moments were going to be spent with those that were around him, but wishing that I could have been And just like being so hard on myself to also be happy because I have a seven and a six year old and it's Christmas time. And we kind of have a lot of loss on the Opelechi side around this time period. So it's kind of a hard time for that side of the family. And um, I just remember... I think I'll probably remember this for the rest of my life. I took the girls out and I just wasn't feeling it. Aaron was working nights the week of Christmas and I took them to get hot chocolate and to go look at Christmas lights because I just felt like, like we just needed to like go and make a memory of them. And the entire time, like we're looking at these Christmas lights. um, I'm just thinking about my uncle.
3: I'm like, I wish he was out doing this I wish he could see I wish he could experience you know um that like with his grandkids and stuff and I texted him uh I texted him
2: I I told him that I told him that I loved him and I was out looking at Christmas lights and I wish that I could see him And I wish that he could experience that. And i told him that I just like wish, wish him lots of joy and peace right now. And he responded like two days later and um, he he told me Merry Christmas and that he loved me. And that was the last time I spoke to him, but I didn't have a lot of regret. I don't know if I call it regret, but I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have any regret when my grandpa passed. It was not expected. and like in the podcast it was scary because i was sitting in this room and i'm like it's it's our turn to start being the adults that have to do this i'm not the kid running around anymore not understanding where i'm at but like with him uh i mean the notion of this isn't fair was so magnified for me because it just seemed like a really painful way to go, and um, he was like an anchor, I guess, like in our, in that side of the family. So there was just a lot of hurt, and then it started kind of being real for me for that side of the family, who's always been this invincible, like larger than life um, type family. In my like in my perspective. In my perspective, like there, I we remember always like looking up to them and thinking, like, I just had these cool Californian, you know, uncles and dad who were just like built like a GI Joe. I mean, literally. And they come into town and they look like they have a spray tan, and that's like just like their natural coloring. And then to imagine that, and then to imagine, um, having conversations with my dad and as invincible as they felt, like I felt like they felt their mortality more than most. Cause they just kind of went at life pretty hard, you know? I mean, so like having to hear, uh, my dad wrestle with it and my oldest uncle wrestle
3: with it, but not, uh, Um, like, trying to make it okay, when uh, you could just really hear the fear,
2: you know, and
3: I just remember thinking,
2: like, I remember wondering, and it made me feel bad, of, like, he was such a logical, just, like, he was
3: so pragmatic, and I remember thinking, like, is he scared? And is there something that he's reaching for that is going to make him feel
2: better? (laughs) And I had conversations with my older uncle about
3: that, but it just really magnified it because um, it really was, like, someone that was, like,
2: fundamentally, like, a part of who made me and I didn't realize it
3: and to think of what they're going through and maybe that they were even okay with
2: leaving because it was just a little too hard yeah, I just didn't feel fair and it was just really difficult and not being able to kind of process it the way that I wanted to made it harder and made it a little bit more um on the angry <laughs> side of things, you know. But I kept feeling him throughout this podcast a lot because a lot of the death that I experienced when that podcast was going on had never really been this personal to me. And I, I had a lot of like you said, stress dreams. I had a lot of dreams.
3: I would kind of like Almost like pray to him before I was going to bed, in the weeks that he passed. Um, I'm
2: kind of hoping that he would like talk to me somehow,
3: but that didn't happen,
2: and it just kind of made it like all that more real to me that even if it's not, even if I do live a long life, like um, I'm going to be going through this with the people I love most, and I I just. Hearing my
3: mom grappling with this, and she's 20 something years ahead of me. um,
2: It just makes it kind of hard to bear, you know, it just kind of makes it like, I just haven't, now I'm just at this point where I just have to kind of like, push it out of my um, thought process when it's when it it comes on a lot of it's just a lot of it is like, when I'm going to bed or something, you know, but it, it has made it I was actually doing a lot better with it at the time of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then um when that went on that was just like it was just constantly hitting me in the face and I was having a lot of like inner turmo- turmoil with myself of like you better tell every single person that you cherish them and the importance of it while also being so frustrated that um, I'm losing someone, you know what I mean? Like trying to be both happy and then sit with grief at the same time am I allowed to grieve am am I allowed to enjoy you know together and I know for I know Erica was able to make it to uh his wake and everything and it's also difficult when we're not from a really affectionate
3: family because I feel like a lot of my um,
2: empathy or sensitivity has been used against me. And so I don't let myself like in relationships, kind of like I'll do this and I'll cry at my, you know, at home by myself in the shower. But like, even my husband didn't really know the weight of this because you just don't. I don't know. I just wasn't taught to really. When I express these things, I wasn't met how I wanted to be met. I would say. So there's a lot of like, buck up, you know, do what you're supposed to do, don't
3: put your feelings on anyone else. Um, you know, you just deal with it. Like it, it, it's kind of, I feel like been taught to me that it's selfish, you know, selfish to share your pain.
2: Yeah. Share my pain. Um, to even feel Mm -hmm. my pain. You know, that's something that kind of Sierra mentioned at the very beginning. Like I said, I'm taking a backseat to it. I kind of felt this thought of, well, yeah, because I, I have been taught, like, I just feel like every parent, every grandparent, just like, I mean, every teacher, every, every mentor, like every person that was older than me in my life was like, I had it worse. Well, you went through this, but I went through that. And it just was like, we couldn't, we couldn't both simultaneously go through something hard, even if they thought that theirs was harder or if it was, it's like, um, I was taught that like, no, I had it worse. You're fine. Smile. Like you're fine. You know? So that really does, I guess I didn't think about it that way, but it really does, um, play into like my own Inner voice, and then also how I react in relationships or act in relationships. Because it kind of came off like, or I maybe felt like it was taught to me that that's egotistical. egotistical.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, um, Sierra, what you modeled for us at the beginning of the podcast is really important because you know, Emily's describing this echo chamber that she grew up in. We, a lot of us probably grew up in where, what you're hearing constantly when you are feeling deeply and expressing that from a child on is invalidation. And I think um, uh, to give the benefit of the doubt, like this place of trying to say, like, we don't, we don't want to create a victim mentality we want you to be accountable and responsible and, you know, whatever, but what, what it, does is it, it invalidates you and it, and it teaches us to compare our stories to one another, to to evaluate whether someone's pain is worth uh, considering. Um, And it, yeah, just bounces off, you know, your teachers, your parents, your grandparents, your mentors, your, your pastors, your whomever, and it becomes an inner voice. And then uh, someone like you comes along and says, oh, you know, actually, we don't have to do that. Like I, I care about your pain and they can both exist in the same place and they're equally valid. And it's, we, we don't have to play by the rules of that game where some people's pain is we're talking about and some people's pain isn't. Um, And if you can do that for me and I can then do that for you. And then Emily, you can do that for Lennon and Aniston and Aaron and I mean we can create
3: our own echo chambers. Um, right.
2: And I do want to say, um, you know, it's generational. The changes are generational. And I really do believe that like our parents did their best. Uh, that are are, but it's with what they were given and what tools that they had, you know. Um it's just that that's, that is what I experienced. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's just been in the last, I would say five years that I, I'm starting to see like, um, uh, just how hard on myself I, that I am, you know, and that I just don't, I don't really give myself the space that I try so hard to give others.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Emily, you and Sierra both named anger like as an emotion that you are noticing come up for you. Sierra, we've talked about this at length of like the place of anger in your life, and anger is some, not always acceptable to people. Sometimes it is. We won't get into that. Um, my thoughts on that, but what um, what I'm what I was feeling as you were sharing about that, especially Sierra. Is I think so many of us in the age of COVID are feeling that sense of like, there's a person I want to be to my kids. There's a person I want to be to my friends. There's a person I want to be to my partner or my spouse or whomever, um, to my friends. And I'm not that person. (laughs) Like I, we, we have felt the, um, whatever it is, the irritability, the frustration, the overwhelm, It was like at a two or at a five or at a seven or a zero or one, whoever you are. And for the last couple of years, it's just been rising and rising and rising because there's only so much that a person can take. There's only so much that a community or a society can take. And I think we all have things that we're feeling a little angry about. We all have things that we're at least a little angry about, frustrated with the way things are. Um, And. I think all of us are operating at a threshold where that irritability is breaking through a lot more than we would want it to, a lot more than we would want it to. Um, Just as a whole, you know, we're just a little, like we're frayed at the edges. I'm curious, Sierra, what would you say if people listening right now are like, yeah, that's me. Like I've felt myself being short with my kids. I've been yelling. I've been, you know, this grief is just this insurmountable grief is stacked up and it's spilling out on the people who are closest to me. And I keep it together on my zoom calls and I keep it together at work and I come home and I'm the worst person. Yeah. Would you, what do you have to say to, to the listener, to me, to Emily? Do you have some insight for us having gone through this, (laughs) like as your life, right? Not, not just an like this extended episode that we're experiencing, Mm -hmm. but this is, years of self-talk and frustration and dealing with your cystic fibrosis i have watched you learn and grow so much and i just i'm guessing you have some insight for us mm. um
0: no pressure <laughs> <laughs> no i i do i have i have generally a an umbrella thought that can then be kind of broken down after that but <clears throat> what i noticed when I noticed there a change happening in that area of my life was when I kind of decided um trying to keep it all together is exactly what is causing me to implode <laughs> and and also um the um, the richness of my relationships to be um impacted, and you know i I know that there was a distinct shift in my relationships with my family um, when I started attempting to, and initially it was, you know, they were, I fumbled, you, you do, you it's just, clunky. yep. Yep. It's very um, childlike because you're starting something new. You're, you're learning to step out of this thing that you've always done that even if you don't enjoy it, that it's been comfortable um and you're trying something n- new on and it's going to feel awkward and it was <laughs> at first but you know i it took me saying okay if i want if i want this relationship dynamic to be different the only the only person that i really can count on to move towards that is me and so i started to take some time about like why am i so angry Like what, what is going on when I'm that angry or when this is going on? And, you know, unfortunately this happened, unfortunately and fortunately, depending on how you look at it, but there was a lot of life and there were a lot of relationships that had a great deal of time under, under the belt where I was angry and I, I responded and acted out of that. And I would say, um, coming to terms with the fact that I can't go back. And change things all that I can do is be reflective and accountable to, to what I was and to try and start naming that and then moving into a um, space of I know we mentioned vulnerability earlier but to expand on that a little bit to actually expose myself for what's really going on which feels messy and I know for me sometimes that means I, I may not feel understood Because if someone else is not in the same headspace as where I'm at, then me exposing myself and me opening up all of whatever might be going on underneath the anger, they might not know what to do with that. And going into that, I have to know that me choosing to um, engage someone out of genuine vulnerability and being willing to... um, be shaped by something other than the anger. And so we we can fill in the blank on other, whatever your other is. For me, it's been trying to figure out what does it actually look like to, to be a loving person that shows up as my whole self. And when I was angry, it doesn't matter when I was responding out of anger, I was showing up everywhere as part of myself because it was the part of myself that I felt like I had the most control over, which is, you know, kind of counterintuitive there because I had zero control over everything that I was angry about. And therefore I responded in ways that I was not in control of my, my emotions. So the way that looked for me was starting to approach those conversations with the people that I loved and saying, I'm, I'm realizing, I think this is what was going on when I responded to you this way for, you know, the last month or the last 15 years (laughs) (laughs) you know, whatever that was and to start fumbling my way through what I had come to understand about myself at that point, because the goal was that I, I, um, express to the people that I love who it is that they actually are loving. (laughs) And, um, so, you know, I remember conversations with my mom and my dad and, you know, even my brother's where I just would say, you know, I feel the weight of this reputation of, of the angry sister, daughter, whatever. And I know that you guys have had patience with me because I have CF, but here's what I'm learning about myself. And really that posture is what has, um, carried me through a lot of those conversations because, um, having a, a, um, a statement where I would say, like, I've figured it out, and this is this. Just to know that probably two years from now I'm going to do the same thing again, that right. felt foolish to me. Like I don't, I don't know where exactly where I'm at, but this is what I'm learning about myself now. And that occurred through um, honest conversations with people that love me and know me, and also through some really contemplative time for myself and. So being able to for for example being able to show up and, and say to my parents I'm realizing I was really angry and here's what I've here's what I've identified as as some key things when I was frustrated and I responded this way when I was this and that it's because I I was scared and I also felt like I was constantly disappointing like every every PFT report that I would walk out of the lab with I would watch your shoulders drop and I would see you guys put on this brave face and then I felt like I'm the bearer of bad news. Just my sheer existence is a burden to everyone around me. Mm
3: -hmm. And
0: when you think that way, and then you're just like pissed off that you're the one that's making everyone else sad all the time, then you're like, well, what is this garbage? Um, And so when I, when I brought that up and I'm like, I was so scared all the time and I didn't know what to do with it. And I felt like I couldn't talk about it because I was trying to be strong for you so that you wouldn't deal with things more so than what you already were. And I know how stressful I already am um, or would, would have been. And I bring that to the table instead of like, well, if you guys just wouldn't have shown that you were so disappointed all the time, maybe I would have felt better. Or maybe I wouldn't have been angry. And right. I think, We kind of work in the superficial things like that so often because that's, that's like the first layer under
3: that Mm -hmm. feeling that
0: we have. And that's, I think that is the, the growth from the childlike um, awareness to an actual maturity into being a whole self is this progression through, I'm realizing this thing is happening that I don't like, I don't like how it feels. I don't like what they do, whatever that is. So I'm angry at it and they're wrong to moving into this space of, which is where I, I would say I was, whatever they were doing, whether my brother was chewing too loud or <laughs> you know something was going on, it was them to, okay, now I'm really, I'm angry because I don't like when I hear it this way or I don't this, whatever. And then that kind of moving through this phase of, well, if they wouldn't have just done that, or if they would have just known that I was dealing with this stuff, then I wouldn't have been. I'm like, nope, that's not going to work either. Let's go a layer deeper. And getting down to this thing of like, what's underneath the, the initial feeling? What's underneath the initial thought? And to the best of my ability, can I communicate that to the people that I love and do so in a way where I'm saying, I just want you to know me better. And I want to be able to show up in a, in a healthier way toward you. And right now that might just look like I'm, I'm sad. That might mean I cry and I don't really understand why that might mean I try to tell you, this is what I'm learning about myself. And for whatever reason that was hurtful to me, or I feel stressed or whatever. And it feels really like stupid and um, remedial in the moment, or you can feel stupid in the moment. I did, maybe not you, I did. (laughs) I felt stupid, (laughs) Um, but I noticed that there started to be a shift and it felt like I started, it was a, it was a um, kind of self-fulfilling thing that started to happen in the same way that my anger was. And that process helped to move me into richer, deeper, more meaningful relationships with with the people that I love. And it didn't mean that the fear was gone because these conversations were happening even Pre-T. <laughs> um, they have, you know, grown more and more post-T as, as I'm just in a different seat of life and I can see things even differently than what I did at that point. But that is the piece that I would say is kind of a um, you can pick that up and drop it into any type of scenario because it doesn't matter what. The initial feeling is what the anger is stemming from. Mine, my anger stem from a different place than what your anger might am or Erica's, or you know, whether it's about things going on in our worlds, in politics, in your personal life, in your family, you know, whatever that is. That ability to recognize the layers of internal reflection and then figure out how do I show up as my most true self right now, and that may not come initially but having people that are trusted that you can explore that with and to be coming from a posture of I'm learning things about myself and that's gotta be enough Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of how I've ventured through all of this. And I have seen truly um, a big transformation in my life and in my relationships that I make now, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the new, the old, relationships, family, friends, and also the new ones that I I make now, I just noticed the change in myself of how I step into those and how I'm able to hold space for myself and for others, because I am learning to do that more and more.
1: Yeah, you know, Sierra, you sharing about that, thank you, because you just walked us through a very complex experience that you have been a journey that you have been on and and are on and you did it in such a a wonderful way and a demonstrative way it made me think of something that Emily had shared with you and with me as we've been processing the, the podcast these first three episodes as they've hit and there was something Emily that you identified and you said you know I just I want to articulate because you and I are in different spaces on our journey of of how we think about death and our spiritual frameworks and different things like that. And there was something that crystallized for you about something you were, you were able to name, like, I don't like that. Like, here's something I've experienced. I feel kind of angry about it maybe, or I don't like that. And it's like, it was churning up for you. And what I was hoping maybe is that if you would be so kind to share that with, with us on this podcast, I think Sierra would be a really great person to dialogue, a a great dialogue partner because Sierra has too, has had some really deep misgivings and a, a really, you know, um, understandable mistrust of the Bible and how the Bible was used in her life as someone who has a terminal illness, And her experience of the church and how the church oriented itself toward her based on her based on having CF, and I have just been like so privileged to be your friend, Sierra, and walk along these years with you as as you have been doing your own self discovery. So I just kind of want to, and if you're willing to share that, I kind of want to toss the ball to you two, and um, see see what comes from that.
2: Are you meaning biblically what I was saying earlier? Yeah. Um, I want to preface it with, I don't, I don't feel a lot of anger with religion anymore. Um, it's the logic behind it for me. Um, the anger, you know, the anger that I had sat with me in my younger, in my twenties and so my younger twenties. And, um, you know, some of the experiences that I had, they were traumatic, but I don't really hold on to. Anything towards the people or anything. I really do feel like it comes stems from a lot of their belief systems. Um and then in just like this last couple of years, this is still me prefacing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um something the pandemic did for me that was positive was because I was a people pleaser and because I thought that's what I had to do and to keep everything, you know, in such a way um, the pandemic kind of exposed for me, like that I could say like, this does not serve me Mm -hmm. and it was okay for me to say that. And even if someone did get upset with me, it was okay for them to get upset with me
1: Yeah,
2: and me accept that, Uh, you know, it's like a nice run-on sentence, but, um, cause that's hard for me when you're a people pleaser and you don't like to have your emotions out in that space in your personal relationships, right? You guys have seen me be pretty vulnerable on the internet, but I have a harder time, um, in intimate relationships. Um, I would say most of my close relationships don't really know how I feel until they hear it on here or see it on the internet. But mine is more, mine comes from a place of confusion mm-hmm. and kind of, Taking back that voice for myself and saying that, no, this doesn't serve me. And um, I want to know why. And I don't necessarily think it's selfish because when I say that the Bible doesn't serve me, I feel like it doesn't serve a lot of people. And um, um, I think the, I don't think you two would, but the comeback is it's not supposed to serve you, it's supposed to serve God. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's easy to say. For people that have had more of a cookie cutter, um, like American um, experience or the American dream experience, I would say. So, I think that might, that part might frustrate me um, c- to speak from a place that they don't know, um, and are not willing to ask, and that be them at the podium preaching that, but they're not going to go out into their actual audience and like you know meet me across the aisle. Mm-hmm. Um they're gonna keep in their circles, they're gonna keep the people around there are gonna make them feel good, it seems like. So that part is what's a little bit harder for me, but um when I'm talking biblically biblically it's very like I said to you, you know, history is written um from the victor's point of view. Like and the Bible you know, was also, and the Bible is, um, to me heavy in the patriarchy. I mean, um, I don't think the, some, like the references of women, somewhat in the Bible get to have like this huge effect to like, I, I almost like, um, I feel like it's almost patronizing, you know, Mary did this, Esther did this. It's like, um, it's nothing comparable to the men in the Bible and you know, like as they were prophets or at least, um, well, I mean, is that fair to say like that they were prophets?
3: They. they was, Moses a prof-
2: was Moses a prophet? Yep. Yeah, Moses was a prophet. Okay. Cause some people don't necessarily believe in that. Okay. So anyways, um, Reading that growing up, and even just reading like children's Bibles and stuff, and just thinking, like, Abraham is cool and so neat, and Noah and Moses, oh my goodness, and watching Passion of the Christ, like, living in this generation of just like, I don't know, like, just masculine, like, heroic deeds by these guys. And we were taught that they were going to basically save us, Mm. you know, like, we had to conform to them. And the way we looked, and what we went through, and how we talked, and had to kind of minimize ourselves, and I do believe that's a pretty direct reflection of the Bible. Um, I don't think it's written with a with women in mind. Um, I would, I would say, like absolutely not. Honestly, um, I don't know how we could go so far back and understand how things were like culturally and in society Um, loving me, loving sociology, like just looking at it from that sense, I understand that that's where they were at. And then you go from point A to point B and we've got Kings and wars and things fought over this text. Um, And so it's translated and it's seen and it's made how they want it to be. And then I'm supposed to read that as truth. Mm. Um, so it's not even just like a I don't like the Old Testament. I don't. How can Jesus validate Moses or Abraham or David? Um, I, I I don't really. The common thing is that he hung out with drunks and thieves and the bad guys. And it's like the bad guys weren't just um, what we want to paint as like you know, people that were going to jail, like, they were, like I said earlier to you, farmers, and just people that lived in their little communities, and they didn't know, and they didn't, they didn't know what was going on, or, you know, maybe they didn't even hear about Jesus, or they didn't, they didn't hear the stories that were being told, like, generationally, and what, like, they just, you know, like, got taken out by an ark, or they lost their, what was it, their sons, because they didn't do this weird ritual that would seem weird mm-hmm. or even you, even if you thought you were on this, the right side of um your belief system and then Jesus comes and he's like, to hell with this. Sorry. <laughs> and he's like, you know, to hell with this. And you're like, but I was not. So then the Pharisees are like, but no, cause I'm following the rules from, the get go and not saying they weren't corrupt, but it's, st- it started somewhere, right. And that they, um, were taught and grew to believe. And it's like, he's, he comes in and he's like, well, I'm, I'm the dude that we've been talking about. So get with it. And like I told Sierra, um, if some guy right now came around saying he was Jesus, I feel like it would take a literal act of God for me to be like, Oh, Oh, you're Jesus. And if if we don't act in the time that you want us to, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just look at the Bibles through that lens of like, if I don't, if I'm just not that cookie cutter, white picket fence, two kids in my house, marry my high school sweetheart, (laughs) then it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit so many narratives. So, so much despair and so much, uh, I mean, I don't even know if I should say, I, I remember saying a thought to you over 10 years ago when I was going through this identity crisis as a Christian. I still believed I was a Christian um, and feeling like I was just completely blasphemous for the thought of, I don't think Jesus' death death was all that big of a deal um the thing being crucified is terrible, obviously that was the way people went back then. That was a way to um that was your punishment. the punishment fit the crime, I guess back then, and we've got girls in you know brothels from the time that they're two until they die at fifteen um and they're not they're not promised that they're gonna sit at the right hand of god mm-hmm. and why do so I wrestle with that? Yeah. Why did that enter my mind like you know i've heard so many people tell me like why do you think like that like how did that thought into your brain like i feel like it would be i'm not saying i don't know i don't know i don't know what jesus actually took on mentally if there was like some intuition there or actual talks that were different than prayer that we that we experience in in our spirituality but it feels very i'd go through you know 30 to 40 years of trials and tribulations. If I knew I was sitting beside this dude for the rest of eternity and I'd be set. Mm. The rest of us don't know that feels like a bigger burden to bear, especially when there's a lot of, um, uh, trauma and just injustice. I mean, Holocaust victims, like, you know, just people that literally existed and, and even and, um, for what, because again, what we're talking about here is you hear and then you die. And even if you think, you know, you don't necessarily know, it seems that he knew where he was going. So it kind of just seems a little bit of
3: a, um, easier, easier way to go out.
1: Yeah. So let me, let me take a stab at, of summarizing to see if if we are on the same page, and then um, I would love to hear your thoughts. And it sounds like what you're saying is that the view of the Bible and the way that that we were taught to read the Bible um, has, you know, really uplifted kind of patriarchal domination, stereotypical like conquer the victor, might is right, the the might is right mentality, and then along alongside that, um, the view of the work of Jesus on the cross, the reason why the cross matters is because it was the most horrific, painful thing that anyone could experience. And Jesus went through that and we we should have gone through that. And
2: I mean, just think of us watching passion of the Christ at 11 years old. Okay. I do. I
1: do think of that. Yeah. Um, so, so the, what made that important was the horrific, how horrific it was, and you don't want to experience that. And that's why you have to believe in this guy, because he took the worst so that you don't have to experience the worst. And here you are saying like, um, I can't see myself in, in the, in that Bible. If I do, I'm on the wrong side and I'm getting squashed or smashed or, you know, whatever. And also that's if I'm on the right side, then I I could have Mm -hmm. the rug pulled out from under me. Um, because, you know, Jesus could show up and say, you thought it was this and we said it, but Hey, psych. It's actually it's it's actually this this way, um, and in in the midst of all that, it's it's really it's not a compelling, it's not a story that you can see yourself in, and it feels dubious to you that <clears throat> Jesus would be trustworthy if when he was here and if he really is God that he's like yeah I'm I'm with that, I affirm that I'm validating that, um, that that seems like kind of where you're where it started where you're saying Jesus. If if when he was here, if he really was God and he's like, yeah, this is my Bible, these are my scriptures and I'm for that, then then maybe that's not something you're super interested in. But I know. Right. And I mean, I don't and I,
2: I do want to say, like, it's not just me. It's like the way that it's been used throughout history. It's been used against minorities. It's been used against women. It's been used against immigrants. It's been used. Um, against anyone that doesn't look like how the Bible looks like in that time period. And, um, I could have very well fit the narrative. I could still very well fit the narrative growing up and, um, being, um, being gay growing up. Um, that was a huge, you know, hot topic. And I remember thinking like, I can have premarital sex. And I can go and sit in a church, and they're going to sing my praises. They're going to come up to me and they're going to greet me. But if you know my best friend were to walk in a church with his boyfriend, mm-hmm. there's a difference. Why is there a difference in this weight? Um, what do you actually believe?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, is it what what you're comfortable with that you're going to go ahead and okay? Well, it's, it's kind of normal now. Um, so it just it it just kind of seems across the board if you if you have questions, if you don't feel like you look the part, um, then you don't, you don't fit in and you've got to conform to it. I spent most of my time, um, in like the assemblies of God. And, and while I was a Christian, just literally, I heard over and over again, get your ducks in a row. You're not speaking in tongues because your ducks are not in a row. And it was just like, how many more days can I fast? How many, I mean, honestly, I was losing crazy weight. And how many more days do I spend in church? And how much do I need to cry? Like, how much do I need to, I mean, honestly, just send myself into a, to, in a into a depression, um, trying to be worthy enough for this guy.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sierra, I feel like you have some... <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same. Surely your story is not the same back to the particulars and the, and the, and the broader picture, but hmm. c- certainly feel some resonance in your story and some things that you've shared with me along the way about. Can time. I please give a, um, like an
2: asterisk or uh, please. I don't, I don't like being pacified with, I like your God. I don't like your people. Like I, oh. you know, like, we, like, well, you don't know, God, you know <laughs> the the people that say they're Christians. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. that I don't want that said to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Were you going to say that, Sarah?
0: No, no. <laughs> don't worry, we're not, <laughs> not going to say me. that.
2: Not, okay, but also, you know, that's we do have people point. listening. Yeah, that's common. and there that might be what they say to people, and I just feel like that's a very quick way to turn it off. Just like when some like mm. someone's diagnosed with cancer, and they say you know it's all in god's timing we don't understand like
1: <laughs> yeah just a, a word for our listeners when someone who has like spiritual trauma yeah. is sharing that trauma with you the the need is not for you to explain it away and and you, you really can't um trauma cannot be explained away yeah and um i will just i guess say pretty unequivocally here that from a Christian perspective and for us to separate God from the people who claim to be like God's people and God's children is incoherent, illogical, and it's unbiblical because when we read the new Testament and the theology of the church is given the way that it's described is that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. And so basically I just got this metaphor today. I was talking to a pastor friend. It's like saying to people, My fist might be punching you, but you should just look at the at my head and my face, and my face is smiling at you. So just be quiet and just keep looking at Jesus's face while I do whatever the heck I want to you and I treat you poorly and I don't live a life of love and I don't follow the commands of Jesus and i say that you know being a christian isn't about being perfect it's about being forgiven um all of these things oh my say it to other christians if you want to say it but um jesus actually is staking his reputation on the church
2: and the accountability is lost exactly um, i'm supposed to take accountability for my sin and for my but because guess,
1: i'm a christian no i don't have to Yes. You can always pin it on someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I'm not okay. Let's just, I'm just Mm -hmm. not okay with that. So yeah. Thanks for just bringing that to light because that is such a common thing is like, stop getting caught up, caught up on people. People aren't perfect. You're here to worship God or, um, but you know, it's very explicit in scripture. Like Jesus said, you, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And John in um, first John, I think it is says someone who, you know, someone who says they love God and then hates their brother or sister is a liar and does not know God. So if we're going to talk about the Bible, the Bible has really strong words to say about that. And it's not, if, if the church has hurt you, then you should just, you know, not worry about that and focus on God. If the church has hurt you, then the the church is um, sick and needs, needs to be reformed and needs to be healed. And People like you and frankly are prophets who are giving us an opportunity to repent as the church and change. Um, and that's a that's grace to us. That's a gift to us. It's not threatening, it should not be threatening to us. And it's not meant to be threatening. It's not meant to be threatening.
2: No.
1: So yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. And um for for those of you, I know you've heard it, I've heard it, and it's been said to you like dude, I'm, I can't apologize for other people. I, I want to. so I'm feeling this urge right now to want to smooth even that over and say like, that's wrong. I'm sorry. And I can't, I can't do that. But I just want to say like, yeah, it's unequivocally not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, the reason why I tossed this question to Sierra M is because I know she, that is absolutely not what she's That for is sure. not going to be her response to you at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Man, um, I guess I'll I'll pick up a little bit um, further on. I won't go back quite as far as far as like, um, at least not yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was born on one beautiful
0: late August afternoon. August
3: afternoon.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> um, you know, I I remember having a conversation Erica when I was trying to sort my way through like what what is Jesus and why do I actually care about who Jesus is because up to that point um you know it's it's a strange thing to um even think about separating my life from the realities of what it is to be a Christian because. You know, I, I would say that, um, you know, growing up my, my family, my family is a nuclear family and I feel very fortunate to have had the parents that I have and I love them deeply and I respect them deeply. I would say that at this point in my life, there, there are certainly things that we don't see the same way. And I'm okay with that because I know that for them, what has shaped them, is to some degree what you had shared earlier Emily they are doing the best that they know how to do and they are on their own journey in the same way that I am and it's mm-hmm. that is that is just true regardless of whether or not they were my parents or a friend and so having that that mindset um of just yeah they've they've been figuring things out along the way and I feel
2: like I'm growing up with my kid, you know, I've, I've learned so much from that of like, I don't even know when you're an adult, like, it just feels like we're growing up together. And so I can only imagine for my parents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, I guess I'm, I'm laying that foundation because, um, you know, my experience as we've already kind of talked about a bit, having been shaped in large part by having cystic fibrosis and that, Um, really impacting what I thought Jesus was, what I thought God was, and what that was supposed to mean in my life. And really some of the earliest um, memories that I have of being in the church was just being prayed for constantly, constantly, Um, you know, being brought to the front of the church, having everyone lay their hands on me, having oil on my forehead, like, yeah. Oh, and and I'm not speaking disparagingly about that. I'm just naming that was my my earl, some of my earliest memories and seeing how um, deeply saddened my parents were, and yet how that was their the lifeline when they have a terminally ill child and they're in this building where they believe that God is going to do something to move mountains and save their little girl. They were doing everything within their power to make that happen. Yes. believe that that would happen. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, what I came to know Jesus as was this entity that was supposed to heal me. If I believed enough. Yep. If, I, if i believed enough and i did the right things then i would be deserving of being healed and you know there were other things that you know were filtered in there so i'm not saying that that's all my parents told me about god or that's all i was right. ever taught but the the thing that that settled after everything in my spirit was this is who Jesus is, and this is who he has not shown up for me as right. in, in my life. Um, and so then, you know, you you kind of zoom out and think about all the different experiences throughout life and how I learned to think about prayer. And again, prayer was this petition to do something for me. And then like a barter, like what do, what do I have to do? So that you do this thing that everyone tells me you're supposed to be able to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, that created a dynamic where I couldn't even read the Bible. I couldn't hear stories. I couldn't, any anything that had to do with Jesus without having this um recording <laughs> playing in the back of my mind of, what piece of information in this story is relevant to this thing that I need to learn how to do better so that I can get healed? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I kind of just lay that down, I guess, as an initial thing. And I I almost, because you have a different vantage point, Erica, I would say I want to um, maybe ask you as you're hearing me kind of start there, what are some things that you have noticed or observed, like you've watched a movie of mm-hmm. my life as, as opposed to being in it? that bubbled up for you where you're like, I remember this. Can you speak to that? That would be helpful.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you, you naming that is really great because it does give like an insight into your psyche and Mm -hmm. how that was the, the filter with which Mm -hmm. you understood the Bible. And that came up in conversation just as we, as we were like, you know, just reading the Bible together or whatever, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you know, that as we started to explore that, like that got really scary for you because at a point where I remember asking you like, okay, so who is Jesus to you? And you're like, he's the guy that's supposed to heal me that hasn't. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I have to do to make him do that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, it was so interesting for me. It caught me off guard because I had just never thought about Jesus like that because I never needed to mm-hmm. think about Jesus like that. Yep. And really what that began from my memory is us having that honest conversation You gave yourself permission then in that moment to say like, I don't know who Jesus is actually. And I don't even really know if Jesus is God and I don't really know if God exists and I don't really know what I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there came a point where (laughs) there came a point where I, I did, I was like, yeah, I don't think any of this is real. I think this is a way that people have come to find safety Mm -hmm. in the unknowns of life and use it as a as a way to move in and around the world but at the end of the day like it's it's this it's the same kind of security that we can get from anything that we manufacture Mm -hmm. and I mean that
2: you get justice it's where you get immortality like those seem to be two things that everyone's craving
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I think as I have as I've moved through a lot of this um, and I'm still, you know, moving, it's not like I've reached this, you know, pinnacle, but (laughs) um, I, I got to this place where I said, yeah, I don't think this is, I don't think this is real. And it's not, it's not worth me spending so much mental energy trying to figure this out when nothing else about my life is, is changed. Nothing like nothing about my life felt impacted or changed by whether or not I said I was a Christian or didn't. And, you know, I came to a point where I shared that with my family and I'm like, I'm, I'm committed. This isn't, this isn't real. And I remember that was very hard for me, for my family at that time. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I would say in the back of my mind though, I was still like, but what do I do with that small little bit that I do know about Jesus, because that is compelling enough to me just as like a great person, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a better, a better way of just existing with the people around you than what I see modeled in a lot of Christians. And so what do I do with that? And I kind of just like threw it in the back of my mind because it was more convenient to do so at the time.
2: Yeah. So, and so I guess think like, it's more, more so, me asking like you being a woman, you being someone with, um, cystic fibrosis, having gone through, um, I would say like life events that you didn't expect to go through because you came from a nuclear family. That's something that I can't relate to in that aspect. Um, you know, how does Jesus appeal to you now after you've,
0: Hmm.
3: you
2: know, made the circle around?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the, what, what drew me back to Jesus and how is that, how is that shaped um, where I'm at now, basically? And you kind of alluded to this in your question, but um, having grown up with a terminal illness, I got married really young because I felt like one, I mean, I I loved him. We were, I would say, high school sweethearts. For and sure. Yes. It was this um idealized and romanticized way of kind of topping my life off. You know, getting married when no one thought I would to this person yeah. I've been with that I loved, but it was very complicated and we were young and figuring things out. And having had that marriage um unexpected go <laughs> um ways that were very hurtful and created a whole nother realm of things in me um you know what what is the point of all of this because up to that point in my life um growing up feeling like I'm gonna die and the only thing that's gonna be <clears throat> really within my reach of of making my life useful or purposeful was to be, um, you know, a great wife, not, not even a mother. <laughs> um, yeah, it
2: seems like you were like, I'm going to check one box and everyone's going to feel good that we got to this point And I won't feel so much weight. Cause like you've this,
0: at least you I will be able to, yeah, it's, it's almost like the give kids the world thing. Like,
2: yeah, like you got to go to Disney and great. then,
0: yep. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it was
0: almost thinking that for myself, or like how do I, how do I make my life haven't have had a purpose? Yes. And to do that purpose well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so when my first marriage ended, that certainly I was like, well, now I'm divorced and I'm, you know, in my 20s and who's gonna want a sick dying girl? How am I gonna keep fulfilling my purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um and, you know, this is right around the time where I, you know, the overlap here was, that was right around the time where I was like, this is all a trash can that's on fire. Like, this doesn't make any sense. No, I, what, is she am? What, is, what is the point of all of this? If I was just here to live, knowing I'm going to die young before all of my peers, and this thing that I thought was going to be the thing that is fulfilling for me now Mm -hmm. has just ended and I don't know how to move forward. And so everything was on fire um, for me. And, And you know,
1: getting sicker and I was getting getting sicker. Yeah, That's true.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it it really, um, you know, just again, to be very candid and introduce like they're, there are a lot of dynamics that were going on and at the time I'd shared with you, I think for the first time that suicidal ideation was something that I struggled with heavily. And over the next two or three years that, that increased because my fear increased the sense of this is pointless. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Why am I here just to have everyone around me suffer and just for me to suffer. And there, you know, there was a lot there. So that kind of as the, the um, context for me then also thinking, Jesus, are you even real? Like, are you real? God, what is this? How do I even look at the Bible and see anything that would be of value to me? And the thing that, that lingered, like I, I mentioned a minute ago, was this person of Jesus that looked nothing like the world that I was used to that looked nothing like what people what I had heard even growing up in the church outside of this one little excerpt where Jesus dies and we think that it's because we were all so terrible and that he had to die and God hated all of us and so Jesus needed to put his hand up and block the wrath and you know there we are yeah and I you know started having conversations with Erica about you know if this if this is if this is real, <laughs> then like how I don't even know what to do with with all of the Bible, like mm-hmm. literally all of it, because there are even things in in the New Testament that don't make sense to me. Um, know, people just drop dead, and you know, <laughs> just, just like what full is of the
1: old Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs>
0: yes, Ananias, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, I don't get this. And my whole life, I've been raised to believe that this is infallible, and this is inerrant, and um, every word has a purpose on this page, and that it is to be held as the single truth.
2: It's brick by brick.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's black and white. It's, mm-hmm. it's simple. You just read it, and you apply it, and I'm like, interesting, so why aren't we cutting our babies in half? Why aren't we, you know, doing these kinds of things, and so i I'm, I guess having a, I'm bringing it back to this thing that for me was the thing that made me say, I can't totally say with confidence that I just absolutely don't believe in anything to do with what I've come to know about the Bible or this Jesus person. Right. And so that was, that was like this little string that I held on to. And the, the thing that started to shift for me was much at that point was much more of an experiential um, process. And so, you know, I started saying, okay, I mean, it can't hurt me. (laughs) Can't hurt me more than what I've already been at to start to think about like and ask what is, what are you Jesus? If you're not this thing that I thought, if you're not this thing that I see in the old Testament, if you're not, all these other things that I have come to say, yeah, I'm not about that. And I can't believe that. And I would feel foolish if I just blindly, um, you know, just blindly believe it and don't ask questions because clearly I am not a good person. I'm not someone who's just like, I don't have any questions. I'm not going to think about that for hours. You know, (laughs) like that's not my, that's not how I am. Um, And so I started to try and, Shift that energy, all of that analytical um like I'm just gonna think about it on it like on a loop into trying to figure out ways to say, okay, maybe maybe I can engage a different part of me that I haven't felt comfortable engaging because it it wasn't presented to me to do so in in my experience of the church and in my experience of faith, and so really what that looked like for us was hearing and learning more from you about some historical context that made the logistics of the Bible make more sense to me.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, an example of that, uh, that I'll just share, and I don't know how much you guys have dialogued about this, but one thing that made the Bible feel less um, uh, lacking in credibility, what, what, what made it feel as though the bible did not lack as much credibility as what i had come to think it did because i refused to believe that it was just infallible and inerrant and mm-hmm. you know, this is the way it is was thinking about my own experience of my life and how i would describe it and learning that i think the bible was a bunch of people doing the same thing
3: mm-hmm.
0: and that jesus is allowing Himself and and I would say God, allowing Himself to be described on this journey of the human understanding, to show the partnership that God is is desiring with with humans, and that He's willing to to walk through that with us, and that He's not threatened by what that would look like. And for again, I'm just saying for me, that's that was a helpful shift, and that shift kind of works itself out practically in, you know, a way like this. So when I was thinking about the Bible as, yep, God actually killed all of those women, children, animals at the end of that war, or God actually told Abraham to kill his son. And then he said, wait, don't do it right. yeah. <laughs> you know, where I'm like, Who? that's not traumatic at all. That's a yo-yo God. Like what, what is happening? And you know when i started thinking about an understanding um through the things that you were teaching me about some some really key points about understanding the time frame time frame in which the bible was written and how the people who were writing the bible would have been understanding things i started to learn that if i or kind of apply my own understanding if i were to look at my life now and say i'm a christian i believe in god and this is this is the example of God in my life to this point. And I were to speak it as fact and I were to write it down and I would give it to someone. The way that that would look for me is God, I was born. (laughs) God gave me cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. God put me in the hospital. God did this. God ended my first marriage. God ended my second marriage. God did all these things to bring me to this place so that I would know him more fully and that I would then talk about him Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. And the reality is that may or may not be actually true, but it's true. What's true about that is my understanding of my experience and what I'm articulating to other people. And more so what's true about that is that is describing my frame of mind, my understanding, my maturity at that point and how I'm understanding that. And again, if you want to like, let's go a little bit more generalized, you think about like a, a toddler or a child. Who's parent says, you know, you, you can't go play today, but you can, you can play tomorrow or something, whatever, with your friend. And they're like, my mommy hates me. They don't want me to have any friends. They're the worst. And I'm never going to get to go have fun. And you're like, Oh, okay. This, this child's frustrated. Mm-hmm. I can see what's not happening. The child actually, or the mom did want them to go here, did want them to go there. But this right. is what they put in place. The idea is not around the parent the parent is not the person of concern here what we understand is this child was just describing their experience of that in the best language they knew how or the best language they had at that time in the best way they knew how and when i started to have that shift when we go back to the the bible or my understanding that started to make it more palatable to me to explore not even to fully understand but just to explore again it was thinking about this people who were doing their best to understand what the heck life was in and in a time frame where, yeah, there was a lot of tribalism, there were a lot of things where were they were being conquered and they were conquering and the, you know, there was this ebb and flow of um human history that we can see in other areas, but when we're not talking about God, we don't we don't see it the same way. Mm-hmm. but when we insert God, we're like, well, God, wanted these people to kill them. God wanted this. God wanted that. Or it was in God's name. Mm
3: -hmm. And I started
0: understanding this as, okay, these were people who were experiencing the highs and lows of life. And when they had highs, they attributed that to God. And when Mm -hmm. they had lows, they attributed that to God or their understanding of God. And the more we see people kind of migrating through this, process of maturity over generations. And then we introduce Jesus into the picture. I think Jesus was referencing to, you kind of mentioned this earlier. What I have come to understand is that when Jesus is referencing the prophets or when Jesus is referencing back, I think he's doing so because it, it does bring a respect and a credibility to the people whom he would be talking to, who did find value in what their ancestors had written down about their experience. Mm -hmm. But that, he was also saying, and yet I know that you've come to believe this is true. I'm here to continue to help you mature into a new understanding of what God really is and who mm-hmm. I really am. And that you have believed this way for a long time and that was okay. But now I want to I wanna help you move into a more whole way of being. And so then, you know, having that understanding, I was like, well, maybe that shifts some things maybe I'm open to considering what this is all about if God doesn't really do those things. And if, and if Jesus actually has a way of living that is more, um, beautiful than the one that I've learned up to now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I want to kind of condense this. And so I'll be more brief here. And, you know, Emily, I would love to continue a conversation later on if you would like, but the, the thing that I would say started to move that from a um, contemplative state, or I was just considering it into like, oh, I think I might actually want to follow Jesus was feeling like the, the, the practical principles that Jesus models that um, have a direct impact on on our world right now and the people that we engage with on a daily basis. If I, if I as an individual were to internalize them, not project them onto other people, not think this is how everyone should be, but if I did it, what would that do in my life? How would that change the the experiences around the people that in the, in the spheres that I have? And I started to just reflect on that, reflect on the people that I know and and knew that were Jesus followers. I started to see the relational impact of that. And truly, I would say (laughs) the way of Jesus's church is a, is a relational one. And the fact that I had you, Erica, in my life to say, yeah, I've, I have been with you and I will continue to be with you no matter where you're at, but this is the way I'm going to choose to love you. And here's why I do that. I was like, Oh, I don't understand that. This looks very different than anything I know. And not to say that I haven't been loved well, but that I've been loved a particular kind of way from you and the, and the presence that you have with other people in your life and the way you oriented yourself around the world and um, issues of, you know, local and global impact. I was like, this does not look like the Christianity I knew. That's to your point, Emily, you get your family, you go to church on Sundays, you do this thing that you're, that's going to line you up and you make sure you don't sin and if you do sometimes you make sure that you repent for that so that we can all go to heaven
3: mm-hmm. and
0: it just felt like so frivolous to me and when you have all these questions and you wrestle with the realities of of your mortality and you kind of have this like existential burden <laughs> um that just doesn't feel enough right and when i started to feel the the relational impact of Someone who was a Jesus follower, I and I saw that as a model of what I was viewing from the Jesus the small passages that I had seen in in the Bible of Jesus. I'm like, this looks more like what I'm reading than anything I've experienced to date, and I know what that's done for me and how that's transformed my life. so there's got to be something here. I didn't know what, and I, I would say I still to this day am taking each day saying, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? And the thing that I, that the thing that I source back to is the relational impact that it has when we actually choose to be, to be motivated by a genuine love and commitment to love, because that shapes everything about how you orient your, yourself in your world. And that, in addition to the, the real life outcomes that are produced from that way of being, was enough for me to say, yeah, I want to, I want to keep exploring this. Um, And I would, so that was enough to make up for any other thing that I felt like I didn't fit the box in, whether I You know, grew up in a nuclear family, or I had been married and then divorced, and you know, all of those things. Having a terminal illness, all of that, this larger thing of being moved and shaped by something that actually had real time and practical implications in the lives of people like myself and those that I love and I care about. I was like, well, that's more than what I've seen to date. That's more than what has felt practical up to this point. And you know what? That's going to have to be enough for now. And I'll continue growing and moving in and through that. Um, but I would say that's kind of the, where the trajectory started to change for me um, and how everything about my life shaped th- those moments.
1: And you have any, any thoughts or um, anything you'd like to share as we kind
3: of come to a close of this podcast, this episode. Um, I can, I can see, I can see where she's coming from.
2: Um, I can see where you're coming from in conversations. And I definitely agree with Sierra in that, like, I do get more out of like conversation with you. Um, and that's helped me like be open to things. Um, cause I'm not, I'm not closed off really to anything. Um, I'm open to anything, but it's still, um, it kind of, it kind of reminded me of like the book strength to love by Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, you know, he, he went a different route than Malcolm X. And I understand both sides as to why you would react one way and why you would react the other way. And, um, so i i kind of get lost in translation there because i think i think we could cherry pick um we could take we could you know pull jesus out of there and say he had all these really great qualities um and i see those same great qualities in a lot of activists and things that i like really look up to and try to um you know live by those qualities of life like I really try to believe in like nonviolence and, um, um, I mean, just at the end of the day, love, like just that, uh, just being kind. I don't know how else to say it. Cause we just live in a really, um, critical time. And I mean, when I mean critical, I mean, criticism, like, you know what I mean? Not like in a critical time. I mean, it's hard right now, but, we're We're a generation that has just been under the microscope thanks to uh the internet um so I see a lot of like I understand where where Sierra' is coming from, but I can see that in a lot of um my role models, so it still isn't completely set apart from me. I mean maybe I know that he was Reverend King's role model. <laughs> you know what I mean so that you know trickles down um but it's, it's still just a little bit more difficult for me
1: than that. Yeah. And I, I am so glad that you voiced that in because yeah. this is a conversation mm-hmm. and we're not, I, I mean, the point is to represent different views. You know, Sierra is my friend. Uh, you're my sister. You, you guys have two different stories, some pieces that overlap, but the the place that her spiritual journey is taking her is not necessarily the place where your spiritual journey is taking you. Right. And, and I think I speak for all of us when I say to those who are listening, like our hope is that anyone listening will find a place of compassion, and understanding, a place to relate in this podcast, not a leading question, mm-hmm. or you should be like Sierra, or you should believe like me, or you should believe like Emily. Yeah. Um, But like, Hey, we're guessing that there's probably, you are probably going to resonate with some aspect of what we're sharing here. And I
2: think like people need to create a, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. Need to like create that safe space at the family table at, you know, visiting with friends. Like we've kind of really, it just seems really all or nothing. And if you don't believe what the other person believes, it's, I mean, like a downright fight right now in our society um, politically and religiously. And, um, like, I just feel like breaking bread is so important. And maybe if you could, people could make safe spaces for their friends and their family and strangers alike, like, um, a lot of things could be learned from all those different sides. Um, if we could put down our own, um, egos, I would say probably egos, like set that aside and just be like, okay, just talking with me. And I feel like there's so much to be learned, in that space, if you're just you know, birds of a feather flock together, you've come to me a few times just to see, ask my point of view. Um, because I'm guessing maybe you don't always get that kind of point of view, you know, when you are in a church. Um, so I think it is important and not to act like it's like so fear based, like that I'm gonna rub off on someone, like I just have like cooties, you know what I mean, like right. Um, that's, what, that's how it feels. That how, that's how it feels on this side. I am not saying that God isn't real. I am saying, like, I just want, I want to be able to ask questions and that be safe. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of people would be able to talk more and wouldn't have, might not be agnostic or might be atheist if they had been met in a different way. Or maybe they'd still be atheist, but at least they could say that they met, the Christians that they met were kind mm. and that they did display, um like i always liked really like the face of steven you know um that always really resonated with me so like to really try and emulate like what you guys say you believe to you know and they're still going to just be atheists at the end of the day and we know that you didn't have an agenda with us it's almost like a mlm thing like oh my gosh are you just going and getting coffee with me so then you can pray with me at the end of this and you can just feel like you check the box or could you just have a relationship with me and like maybe we can just grow together in friendship and you don't feel like two years down the road well that didn't work so there's nothing here it makes people like me feel like that's why I can't have genuine relationships with people in the church because I'm either not there yet or my or I might not ever be or I'm just in a completely different frame of mind that even if I do come to fully embrace and have a relationship with Jesus, it would still look taboo to them because it's not concrete.
3: Yeah.
2: It's not biblically concrete. And so I, all I had to say, like wrapping that part up is, um, I, I think if a lot, a lot, a lot more genuine conversation would be allowed and people could understand on both sides or in the middle that there are so many gray areas and then a lot of um, good conversation and maybe, his life is, it's just, life is just so relational. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's, we just, we are our, our relationships. Like people really help to form us. And if you've just been met with such, um, judgment and criticism, and then you read the Bible and it looks that way, like, it's just, you're not going to get me there.
1: Yeah.
2: And I, it is, you guys have some duty in that. I mean, when you, I, from what I've read, like when you take it up with him, you kind of got to Walk some of his walk, you know what I mean. So that's hard to not see that. I see that with you guys. I don't see that, um, or not like how I would like to in my world. So I would love to be able to do that in my area.
1: You know. Yeah, yeah. And something that I'm hearing you say, and I think we can all take um, from this podcast as we wrap up this part of the conversation is, if we were to approach other people not as projects but as teacher. That we would all, (laughs) we would all grow and find so much more fertile um, space within our relationships and in our worlds with We don't have to come to relationships with an agenda. We don't have to come at people thinking that it's our job to change them. And Mm -hmm. actually, when we do that, we are like, we're sacrificing an opportunity to experience another human being who, you know. (laughs) whatever your perspective is, the, the fact that we're here, it's so absurd and ridiculous that you know, this is what we've been talking about this whole time. You're looking at an absurdity. You're looking at this anomaly that that this life forms somehow. And you're and you are eye to eye with someone and to and to give that away for the sake of trying to change them, to give that away for the sake of trying to control them. What yeah. a loss mm-hmm. when we could actually engage one another with dignity and respect and say, like, you know what? you're going to teach me something and I'm grateful for you because you've lived a life I haven't lived. You've walked a walk. I haven't walked. You've weathered storms. I haven't weathered and, and, and you have weathered storms that I have too. And Mm -hmm. I can't know any of that stuff. If I come at you, um, needing to change you, needing something, you needing to get you to be like me, Mm -hmm. man, what, how many opportunities, would unfold before us if we were just allow ourselves to open up in that that one way.
2: Yeah, just experience one another.
1: Yeah. Really be present. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Any parting
0: thoughts, Sierra? Oh, I mean, I I think I think that kind of ties a a pretty solid bow on a lot of the things that we've talked about, because I can see I can see the ways that, you know, various portions of our conversations connect to that very, that very thing. Of how do we relate to other people? How do we wrestle with the fact that we are all here
3: mm-hmm.
0: for one reason or another? <laughs> Why are we here? <laughs> we are here. <laughs> yeah. And what do we do with the time that we're here? Um, yeah, I think that that makes that brings a lot of this at least to a point of how do we relate to the the person sitting across the table from us at any given point and what informs how we approach those scenarios when we are seated across from someone alike or different from us.
2: We've been faced with mortality, especially as Christian, like growing up in the church, we've we've been faced with that with as much fear from the beginning. So to say that, you know, people that are judging me because I'm not there right now, they, they were, they were there, even if it was as a child, we're all trying, we're all, we're all trying to get somewhere at the end, almost together. You know what I mean? So Um, I don't know, find some joy in that or some grace in that when you're talking to people that aren't like you, you know?
1: And that's where we will wrap up this week's episode. Coming up next week, we will do our question and response. That's when Emily and I will take the input and the feedback and the questions and thoughts that you have so graciously submitted and share them and give our responses because we probably won't have satisfying answers, but we're happy to continue this conversation with you. If this episode or this podcast in general has brought things up that you would like someone safe to talk with, I would love to connect with you. You can reach out to me at my email address, E-R-I-C-K-A at holydistrict.org. And you can also connect with us on social media at Rediscover Sacred on Facebook and Instagram. We would really love to connect with you and to hear from you and to maybe find a way to keep on journeying together, just taking our next steps toward becoming more whole and healthy people. So thanks so much for joining us today. And I look forward to being with you again next week. We'll talk to you then. The Holy District is a growing network of people in the United States who are finding creative ways to live integrated jesus in their lives in their communities, with their communities, and for their communities. We're committed to rediscovering the sacred in the everyday spaces where we already live and work, and we're grateful that you're a part of
3: this with us.